HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Why can't you tell consumers up front what you're really going to charge them? Why can't you tell consumers that in addition to your low, low delivery fee, you're also going to be charging a 20% service fee and you might be charging a small delivery fee and you might be charging something that you used to call the Chicago fee, but now you are calling a regulatory response fee. Why can't you do those things? And if the answer is we can't do them because our business won't survive because consumers won't use us if they actually knew up front what they were going to charge, then that really makes the point of the lawsuit. You've got to be honest about what you're doing and then see if the model works. You just heard the voice of Betsy Miller, lead outside counsel to the city of Chicago in its current lawsuit against Grubhub and DoorDash. Later in this episode, you'll hear Betsy talk more about fees charged by meal delivery services and price hikes that the lawsuit claims hide real costs from customers. In this episode of Meet and 3, we pull back the veil. From culinary imitation and unseen nutritional compounds to anonymous feasts, we explore all things hidden. Stay with us as we learn what is unseen when it comes to food, food costs, and food production. I'm Hannah Forden, and this is Meet and 3. Meet and three. Meet and three. Meet and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and three. If you've recently been in a frozen food aisle or to one of a growing number of fast food chains, you've seen it. The Impossible Burger. The Impossible Burger is part of a whole new host of products striving to imitate meat. They are not the veggie burgers of the 90s with visible bits of corn and peas. No. The Impossible Burger cooks, looks, tastes, and bleeds like real meat. Junie Terry learns more about this imitation meat and where nutritional differences arise. Let me preface this by saying that growing up, my family wholeheartedly embraced a meat-heavy diet. 
steak, lamb, ground beef, even occasionally chicken. We ate it all. So I consider myself quite experienced when it comes to eating meat. But biting into the Impossible Burger, I was shocked. It tasted so much like real beef. How chemically or nutritionally similar might the Impossible Burger be to the real thing? Here to answer that question is Dr. Stefan van Vliet, a research associate at the Duke University School of Medicine. We know food is much more than the 30 nutrients that routinely appear on nutrition facts panels. So in our work, we really go beyond those 13 nutrients that routinely appear on nutrition facts panels and look at what is called the whole food matrix. So foods contain hundreds to thousands of metabolites that can impact our our health and, uh, and our constituents of foods. Dr. Van Vliet took the following approach to examine the deeper nutritional value of imitation meat. What we did was got ground beef from a ranch in Idaho, grass-fed beef. So we got 18 samples of that, so 18 packages. And then we bought 18 packages of a plant-based meat alternative. In our metabolic kitchen at Duke University, we cooked up these patties with the research staff or the kitchen staff. And then we took a small piece of each of those patties. We froze them in liquid nitrogen to preserve all the nutrients that are in there and all the metabolites. After freezing the different patties in liquid nitrogen, Dr. Van Vliet and his team broke down the samples using a mass spectrometer. After a series of complex statistical procedures, they came to a conclusion. We identified about 190 in both food sources. We found that there was a 90% difference in metabolite abundance. So in other words, a plant-based meat alternative is not beef, and beef is not a plant-based meat alternative once you go beyond the limited amount of nutrients that appear on Nutrition Facts panels. No matter how much the Impossible Burger looks, tastes, and bleeds like a burger, It's actually not a burger, at least nutritionally, even the best scientists can't truly reproduce a beef patty. However, when it comes to the question of whether or not a meat substitute is a better option, there isn't necessarily an easy answer. I think the main takeaway for consumers is that from our work in our metabolomics comparison of meat and plant-based meat alternatives, we cannot determine whether one is healthier to consume, but it's also beyond the point. Dr. Van Vliet's research finds there are beneficial compounds in both imitation beef and the real thing. Furthermore, the comparison between imitation and real beef doesn't end with nutrition. Dr. Van Vliet has also compared the environmental impact of consuming beef as opposed to consuming imitation meat. An imitation meat patty might have a lower carbon footprint than beef raised on a feedlot, but that comparison becomes far more difficult when considering more sustainable methods of cattle production. Just as there is not a clearly healthier option, there is not a clearly more sustainable product. Dr. Van Vliet's research is not to argue that you should always choose the Impossible Burger or always choose grass-fed beef. Instead, it is an argument to better consider the nuance of health and environmental effects of the food we choose to consume. As we learned from Dr. Van Vliet's research, the food we eat are chock-full of nutrients like vitamins, minerals, and other molecules that most of us don't think much about. H. Conley has a story about one such component that is harmless to most people, but extremely dangerous for some. I love cooking for people, and I pride myself on being able to cook for any diet. Grain-free, vegetarian, vegan, nut-free, I can figure out something tasty for everyone. But this year, I ran into a dietary restriction that had me truly stumped. My partner's mom recently found out that she's a stone former. Sadly, it's not the superpower it sounds like. She's part of the 10% of the population who forms kidney stones, and the 80% of that group who form calcium oxalate kidney stones. It's a serious condition, 
Stones can be incredibly painful and some need to be surgically removed. So she has to avoid dietary oxalates. But what are oxalates? Oxalate is a poison. This is Dr. Ross Holmes, a biochemist who studied this poison for over 30 years. Oxalate first uh, was discovered over 100 years ago. It was derived from bark and used in cleaning products. When people found out if you ate too much of it, it became a good way to commit suicide. The scary thing is that oxalates are everywhere. Peanuts, sesame seeds, potatoes, carrots, chocolate, black pepper, you get the gist. But the lists of high-oxalate foods online are confusing and sometimes contradictory. There's several reasons why people just uh, throw up their hands and say, well, this is sort of impossible. It's uh, compounded by any particular food you select. (laughs) There may be variations related to It's uh, growth conditions, how much sunlight, uh, temperature, the particular strain of spinach. You know, there's probably half a dozen different strains of spinach that are raised for commercial uh, reasons. So it's almost impossible to avoid oxalates altogether, especially because... If you exclude too many things, you may create an unhealthy diet. It may help your kidney stones, but it may contribute to something else going wrong. Okay, if it's basically impossible to avoid them, and even if you could, you shouldn't, then what can stone formers do? There are ways of mitigating the impacts of eating high-oxalate foods. Drinking a gallon of water a day is recommended for people with all kinds of kidney stones. It keeps the urine dilute so that stones form more slowly. The other way to counteract oxalates is by eating my favorite food group, dairy. The calcium in the dairy product will bind the oxalate you may have eaten in the gut and you won't absorb it into your body. It'll be in the gut as insoluble calcium oxalate and will be excreted by the body in stool. It was a bit of a shock to hear that on doctor's orders, if my partner's mom wants spinach, it better be creamed. Dr. Holmes says the best data available on the oxalate content of foods is on Harvard's site, informed by research from his lab at the University of Alabama. Armed with that spreadsheet and lots of water, stone formers can protect themselves from future stones. And it can't be too bad being told that for your health, if you eat a leafy salad with carrots, you should have a side of mac and cheese. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a brief break. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, The My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it, from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children, about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. 
Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Meet and Three. Despite often heated debates surrounding when, what kind, and whether or not to use them, masking has become the new normal during the COVID-19 pandemic. Our next story covers a very different kind of masking, the masking of fees by food delivery services. Julian Smedley fills us in on the ongoing lawsuits filed by the city of Chicago against DoorDash and Grubhub for deceptive business practices. In August of 2021, the city of Chicago filed two consumer protection lawsuits, one each against Grubhub and DoorDash. Chicago is calling them, quote, the first comprehensive law enforcement actions against meal delivery companies in the United States, unquote. Our lawsuit tells the whole story. Um, it incorporates the consumer-facing deceptive pricing. It incorporates what's been happening with restaurants and the way that these companies prey on restaurants. And it really connects the dots um, as to the way these these companies are um, entering this industry and kind of making it impossible for consumers to understand the prices that are out there and impossible for restaurants to survive uh, without them or with them. Ailey Zenner is the Assistant Corporation Counsel for Chicago. He's one of the lawyers leading the lawsuits against DoorDash and Grubhub. I spoke to Ailey and Betsy Miller, who you heard from at the top of the show, about their cases against the two food delivery services. So for example, both of the companies advertise a relatively low upfront delivery price. And that, you know, that is the service they are providing to consumers. But in fact, nothing gets delivered for that price. As you proceed through the transaction, you get to the very end and find out only then that there are a series of additional fees tacked on to the delivery price, which can raise the amount the consumer is paying by a multiple of, you know, four or five times in some cases. I did a test run on both the Grubhub and DoorDash websites to see just how misleading the checkout processes are. My three carnitas tacos from a local spot in Brooklyn were $13.47 combined in my DoorDash cart before checkout. My sandwich from around the corner was $16 on Grubhub. When I clicked checkout, I was brought to a new window on both websites, which then listed the additional fees, tax, and tip for my delivery person. My final total for the tacos was $20.48, so that's $7 tacked on. The sandwich from Grubhub came to $20.46 when all was said and done, which is $4 extra. These fees are relatively clear once you reach checkout. However, the Chicago lawsuit's proponents argue that fees should be visible in your cart and that saving them for a separate checkout window takes advantage of users who will see them as a sunk cost. The food delivery services argue that any customer who isn't absolutely flying through the process can see the cost of getting their food delivered. But a checkout process that hides fees until the very end isn't the only practice Chicago is calling out. The lawsuits are denouncing the fees themselves. Until the day we filed the lawsuit, DoorDash had responded to Chicago's temporary emergency commission cap, which was to keep commissions charged to restaurants by the defendants at 15% by charging every transaction in the city of Chicago something that they called a, quote, Chicago fee. And when you see that at the end of the transaction, it misleadingly conveys both that that is a fee that is ordained by the city of Chicago, which it's not, and or that it is money 
going to the city of Chicago, and it is not. Both um, the fee and the money from it went to DoorDash. A McKinsey analysis puts delivery services' average profit margin at $1.20 per order. Their profit comes from restaurant commission and service fees charged to customers, but is eaten into by the cost of deliveries, marketing, and IT. In addition to upping their commission, food delivery services look for a variety of ways to grow their margins. One notorious strategy is to list restaurants on their site without the restaurant's permission. There's a, there's a story in Chicago about a restaurant, a, a higher-end restaurant that somehow ends up, well, not somehow, that the companies put on their platform um, and, you know, ends up with these DoorDash or Grubhub delivery drivers showing up and delivering food that wasn't meant to be delivered, you know, and it gets to the customer's house and it's not good. And then the customers think it's the restaurant's fault and they blame the restaurant. In the last couple of years, DoorDash has risen to the top of the U.S. marketplace in part because of the practice of listing unaffiliated restaurants. Other services like Grubhub have followed suit. Both companies say that restaurants have the option to take their menus down from the service and can do so with a simple email. But a lot of the restaurants who have unauthorized listings, um, you know, they're small immigrant restaurants. Uh, They don't know how to fight against a company like this. They don't know how to get fake websites taken down. They don't know how to get their menus you know, off these companies' websites. If you've ever spent an afternoon trying to get your money back for a pizza that was never delivered, then you know that sending an email into the ether doesn't always work. One of the themes that has really come through quite clearly to us is a lack of consistently accessible and responsive customer service. It would make a world of difference to these restaurants if a busy restaurant owner who is in charge of serving thousands of customers a day and responding to consumer concerns and keeping his or her kitchens open, didn't then have to take three or four or five or more hours of his or her time to try to sort through inaccurate charges and bills um, for things that were not their doing. One major consumer complaint is that menu prices on DoorDash and Grubhub don't match those from restaurants' menus. This happens often. That sandwich from my neighborhood that I was looking to order on Grubhub for $16 is $13 on the restaurant's menu. Both DoorDash and Grubhub state that restaurants set their own menu prices on the platforms. The city contends that this is a red herring, that the service's failure to disclose upcharges is misleading and stifles consumer choice. DoorDash and Grubhub respond that they aren't required to disclose price hikes. They liken it to other online shopping, save for a pair of pants. If the customer doesn't put in the legwork to find the best price for their jeans, it's not the fault of the service they do end up buying from. But is ordering delivery from a restaurant the same as ordering a pair of jeans? The court will soon answer this question, as well as the question of what penalties, if any, there should be for DoorDash and Grubhub. We also are seeking restitution for restaurants. Uh, Restaurants have really been harmed by this conduct. Uh, Consumers have also really been harmed by this conduct. And we want the companies to make the restaurants and consumers whole for the, the financial pain that they've caused. It's important to note, too, that Chicago suits only touch on consumer and restaurant-facing practices. They don't confront DoorDash or Grubhub on their labor practices, which have been widely criticized by labor advocates and are the subject of recent legislation passed by New York State. You know, in the past two decades, we've seen tech companies rapidly push into new industries um, and markets in disruptive ways. And while those those pushes into new markets do bring, you know, benefits for consumers, real benefits for some consumers. Um, it's not okay for the companies to flout the regulations that serve to protect small businesses, that serve to protect consumers, that serve to protect workers. It's not okay for one industry player to misuse its power 
and prey unfairly on uh, other businesses in the industry. Um, and it's not okay to mislead consumers so that you can win market share um, in, in an industry. If Chicago wins its suits, what will be the future of food delivery services? The industry is forecasted to grow in revenue, but so long as the current competitive structure remains, no single service will be able to reap a large profit. Will we see the monopolization of the industry by a single player like DoorDash or Uber? These are questions that confront the tech industry broadly, and ones which we will hear more about as government regulation of the tech sector is increasingly debated. So much of our interaction with food is palpable. We chop, slice, we salt, we taste, we share. But what do our increasingly digitized lives mean for our relationship to food? How do screens change the way we share meals? Ellie Katz brings us a story about the hidden audiences of mukbang. Originating in South Korea, mukbang is a combination of the Korean words for eating and broadcast. Hosts, also known as mukbangers, livestream videos of themselves eating food as viewers watch along. There are tons of different kinds of mukbangers. Some talk to their viewers, some only do eating ASMR, some do American fast food binges, while others stick strictly to Korean food. But with pretty much any mukbang, you can expect a host who looks directly into the camera while eating lots of food. Today, we're having our favorite. Mm -hmm. It's so good. There are millions of people around the world who watch mukbang. For longtime fan Amy Kim, it creates a sense of comfort. I'm Korean, and I've been away from Korea since I was in middle school. So it's a way for me to connect with um, my culture back home. Um, I mean, thing, you can still get a lot of things here that are Korean, but still, like, things aren't the same. And I get to see people eat things that I couldn't find here. And to me, it's, I get joy out of that. <laughs> and somehow I'm able to... Beyond connecting with cultural roots, uh, mukbang allows fans to connect as individuals, too. With the most popular mukbangs consistently garnering more than 100 million views, these might be the biggest communal meals in the world, where no one's actually in the same room. But eating alone together may be more natural than it sounds. As single-person households continue to increase throughout the world, mukbang has become a legitimate meal companion. To me, it's almost like a meditative thing. They're like watching, they're enjoying it, and they tell you what they're eating. I'm like, okay, yeah, I would like to eat that too, you know? And then I watch them eat it, and it's like very like, you know, it's meditative almost. Like, it's, like, it's very comforting. And part of it is like, you know, when I'm tired, I'm not too tired to eat or cook. But when I see other people eat, it's somehow like I'm eating too. And I think people like watching mukbang because it's eating and everyone eats <laughs> and most everyone enjoys food, right? And, and food is like one thing that brings everyone together. Scroll through the comments on just about any mukbang and you'll see people joking with each other, talking about a previous mukbang they liked, and writing thoughtful messages to the mukbanger in any number of languages. One user writes, 
I just wanted to say thank you for every video you make. I've been struggling a lot with my eating disorder the last couple weeks and you encourage me to allow myself to enjoy food as much as you do. You're the best. Another comments. Daily reminder to everyone, get some food and water if you haven't today. Get your pillow and blanket, turn off autoplay and relax. Even though it's not as visible as sitting down together, passing the salt, and trying each other's food, real community happens here. And sometimes, that's enough. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Junie Terry, Ellie Katz, H. Conley, Julian Smedley, and Angie Fike. Meet and Three is produced by Matt Patterson, Dylan Hoyer, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Hannah Forden. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet and Three is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story you would like to share with us, or if you just want to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. 